You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Q&A panel on objectivism with Ankar Gatte, Tara Smith, Gregory Salmieri, and Aaron Smith. So the first question is our friend over there because we interrupted you before. Thank you. Well, thank you for the amazing talk. My question is, can capitalism exist in anarchism? Can capitalism exist in anarchism? Yeah. No. Thank you. <laughs> Can it exist in anarchism? But just to be clear, what capitalism is, is a system where people are organized around individual rights with a government to protect rights. And anarchism is precisely where you lack that. And the idea that you could somehow get protection on a free market anarchistically presupposes that the market's free. But what it is for the market to be free is for people's rights to trade on it to be protected which there isn't if there's not a government. So the whole thing is a contradiction in terms. Anarchism is a, our capitalism is a type of way a society can be organized under a government. Yes, um, I have a few, uh, well, I agree with uh, what was said by certain speakers. I mean, I oppose the idea of uh, effective altruism and, and all of that. However, uh, I would disagree that reason has evolved because what evolution is, is a mechanistic process, which is just uh, things that happen, cause and effect. Where would reason come from? That's my first point. Second point is, in capitalism, there seems to be two problems. One problem is that boom and bust happen. Now, boom's great, but bust isn't very good. Now, if you tr truly wanted to exercise reason to improve a system, you would try to uh, engineer it so that boom continues without the bust. Can we do that? That's one question. The second question is... Well, today, mm, yeah, now we've gone to yeah. three. I'll leave it there. I'll so leave it there. Let's just okay. take the first two. I'll leave it so there. So could reason evolve? Anyone want to... I have to say, but I don't want to hug the mic. Well, I don't, think that, I don't think that's a philosophical question. Uh, it can reason... I don't know what can reason... I don't know what can reason evolve even means. Um, is the faculty of reason, man's ability to think conceptually, a result of a process, a long process perhaps, of, a, of an organism that is evolving over time? Presumably, yeah. But is it, does reason evolve? It sounds like, I actually don't know what that means, but it's not a question, I think, for philosophy. Well, well, the point would be, is reason something which is an evolutionary product? Uh, like, for instance, the wings of birds or... So the, yeah. I don't see... I, I, don't, I don't want to keep having back and forth because there are so many other people, so I'm made nervous by your standing there. But I don't see... The reason you gave for thinking reason couldn't evolve was that, it, in fact, it has free will and it's not mechanistic. But... Um, and it's a question how to understand consciousness at all and free will and how it fits in with the rest of physics, right? And I don't think we know the answer to that, but I don't think we know anything that would rule out or suggest that it's impossible for, we don't know how brains create consciousness, but something about them makes it such that when matter is arranged in a certain way, it makes things conscious apparently, because here we are being conscious, and consciousness helps creatures live. And Seemingly, something about a way brains can get arranged and this arrangement can be passed on genetically makes people not only conscious but have conceptual consciousness with volition, 
I don't know what it is about brains that makes that possible, but something seemingly does, because they do. And um, what does reason, this volitional form of consciousness, do for us? Well, it does everything for us and makes us able to live in, in you know, a much grander scale, even when we use it sporadically, as those people did for those first uh, 150,000 years. So I think it's easy to see how if a physical system can, in whatever way it does, cause consciousness that has a conceptual and free character, how as soon as that popped up, whatever mutation, it would be selected for. But don't ask me what that mutation is or how it does it, but seemingly it's here because we're doing it. And, uh, I don't, and I think selection pressures would favor it once it exists. So I don't see why it couldn't evolve, but I think there's a lot we don't know about how it works. As for booms and busts, I'll let someone else uh, speak because I don't want to. I want to say just one other thing on the consciousness evolve. So if you brought in the question, as Greg did, to does consciousness evolve, I think the evidence we have from the biological record is that it does evolve, it, that you get it in more primitive forms and you get more sophisticated animals with more sophisticated conscious abilities and that reason would be a later evolution of that. I, I think the evidence indicates that's what happened. On the booms and busts thing, I'll just say you can't guarantee booms, right? But you can ensure the preconditions that allow them to happen, right? By having a capitalist system in which you really respect freedom of trade, right? That's the necessary base for the possibility of good ideas, great ideas, and a lot of them at once such that you could have you know, booms and boom-like the extent to which a boom-bust cycle is inherent in a free market, I don't think we know. I think we know the potential for both is there, and I think we know about times when there were booms and busts under freer markets than we have now. There have continued to be them under less free markets. Um, people don't like busts, and people are smart. So I think um, under a free economy, a lot of evolution about how to mute busts and the effects of them would occur privately through contractual arrangements, types of insurance and whatever. I don't think you could get rid of, you know, the potentiality of it ever happening. But I imagine that without knowing the details of the economic history, that you would see a kind of trend towards uh, more resilient economies by people organizing themselves freely. And I think there's some evidence that that was happening across the 19th century and 20th before we set up a Fed to kind of put us uh, a... a coin in the fuse box of that. Yeah, thanks. Good answers. I'll, I just actually want to add two things about the boom bust. So it's, you can get localized booms and busts in a free economy, but when you're really talking about booms and busts, you're talking about economy-wide. And I think that only happens when you have government intervention in the money supply. And even when you look at relatively free societies, Government has almost always had, had some real intervention in the money supplies. And there's people who study free banking, and they argue, and I think it's plausible their arguments, that when you look at the freest systems that have the least intervention from government in the mo monetary system, because the, the reason the monetary system is so important is it's setting prices for the whole economy. And so if you screw that up, you can screw it up economy-wide and get all kinds of malinvestments. And the people who study this argue that the freest banking systems have the fewest uh, busts. 
And, and then one other thing, if this were really why governments were concerned about it, you would abolish the Fed. All the evidence is that booms and busts after the Fed Reserve and equivalents were created across the Western economies. We've had way greater booms and busts, like the Great Depression. So, and if the, you were really concerned about that, you would think yeah, maybe the, our monopoly on the money is a massive problem, not a solution. So I had an imperialism question. Okay. Um, so Lenin makes the claim that imperialism is just like the most advanced form of capitalism because it can't really be contained in a state or a country. It has to sp spread worldwide eventually. And I was wondering if you could make the argument that for maybe like an undeveloped country somewhere in like Africa, if they have like untapped resources that could be really good for our country, and they don't have concepts such as like free trade or they don't believe in that, whether it could be in a country's rational self-interest to start a war and, and get it. Well, I, sorry, I'm misunderstanding whose interest. I thought you were talking about the interest of the African country. Of another country who, so, who, 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 like, who thinks that that could be really productive for them. So in other words, like, we want some element that's, uh, there's a lot of it to be mined in this African country, and so is it in our interest to invade them? Yeah, something like that. I guess I should start on that because it's coming out of, out of my talk. So uh, there is a way in which Lenin's right that capitalism is expansive. It doesn't stay within its own borders. I think it's the opposite way he thought. He thought you run out of markets, so you have mm -hmm. to you run out of workers. Um, that doesn't happen. But you do... Um, start coming up with more and more ideas of ways to do things and more and more ways to involve other people in them and other people who have resources in other places. And so it spreads like wildfire, and it did. Um, and the more you have ideas for how to build things, the more you start seeing the world as full of potential resources for that building, you start looking in more and more places, more and more knowledge is developed about how to do it. And so it's natural that it should lead to people thinking, well, what can we do in this area of Africa? What can we do here? I, I think there's a really hard question that comes up when you're somebody from a fairly well-governed country, you have a business in a fairly well-governed country that finds an opportunity in an ill-governed or ungoverned country, a country that's governed by a, a despot or it's um, in a state of anarchy with, with groups warring for one another, and the, the, you have good reasons for wanting to do business in that country, uh, that is, some companies from the country, the country one, has good reason for wanting to do business in, in country two, but country two is not governed well. And how should the government of country one deal with that? Options. Uh, it doesn't do anything. Uh, option two, it lets its companies go up and try to set up their own governments in country two. Option three, it invades country two. Option four, it lets its governments, its companies set up themselves as a government, finds that that doesn't work, and then you know, decides that now it's the government of that other country, that's what happened in India. None of those seem like the right option. Uh, what exactly is the right option? I don't know. I think something that requires a lot more thought in kind of international policy is um, how the laws of a country that has rule of law and a significant respect for rights should deal with 
its own citizens' operations in other countries. And I'm sure there's some set of principles for how to do that, but I don't think they've been well articulated. So Ayn Rand and uh, many 19th century individualists claim that a free country operates on the, con uh, the consent of the governed. And I'm seeking to uh, separate, see where the line uh, is from the consent of the governed and democracy, like the, the idea that government should operate how the people want it to operate. And this, this is one uh, like uh, tension which I have with this idea of the consent of the governed. And the other is that according to objectivism, even uh, dictatorships operate according to the prevalent philosophy of people who live under that dictatorship. So what do you make of the idea of uh, the consent of the government? Well, I'll, I'll start it off by saying just two things. One, uh, Rand isn't saying that uh, when she says a, a government operates by the consent of the government, or, or the cons consent of the governed, she's not saying if people consent to it, it's a legitimate government. She's directly opposed to that idea. So it's not, it's not the consent that legitimizes the government or that form of government, because then that would be complete subjectivism. If everybody uh, consents to uh, some sort of Nazi dictatorship, then that's okay, right? Then she says, no, definitely not. Um, but two things about the issue of consent. One is the notion of the consent of the government, the, the government rules by consent of the government, is the notion uh, that the government is your agent, operates as your agent of the citizens. Uh, and you have to think about what's legitimate about... Um, what citizens can properly delegate to government so they can be their agent. Um, and the other thing is, there is just sort of a factual relationship between a, a, a citizenry or a population that does not consent to its government. It, do, it thinks, people can imagine being in a country where the citizens basically think, I don't even regard the government as my agent. Like, I'm disassociated from the government. The citizens really think of it as, I don't even look at you as my agent. It means the citizen think of its, your own government as, this is illegitimate, you're not my agent. And I think what that involves is a real break between the citizenship and it's even being, uh, it's seeing the government as its government. And so I think you, uh, consent is something that I think is, is a kind of a fluid thing. It's not like you sign up at age 21 and you sign a paper and I consent and there you go, you're my government. It's that it's a continuing ongoing relationship one has with a government and it can kind of diminish or increase, um, but it isn't the consent that legitimizes the government. It's the idea that the government properly and legitimately operates as the agent of its citizens' rights in effect. Um, I'd like to suggest a modification to that. I mean, it isn't just the consent that legitimates the government. So I think the consent of the people is part of what makes the government legitimate, but it's not a sufficient condition for legitimating the government. It's like if two people are in a romantic relationship, is it a good romantic relationship? Well, they've got to consent to it for it to be good. If they don't, it's really, really bad. But people consent to bad relationships all the time, um, you know, and something could be bad and in that sense an illegitimate government, even if it's consented to by the majority of, of the people there. Um, so 
So a method of attaining popular consent, I think, is, is a necessary feature of a proper form of government, uh, but not a sufficient feature. And uh, with regard to how that relates to democracy, I think it, it follows from government's role as a protector of rights and as the agent of the people in protecting their rights that a proper government has to be representational, at least over any long period of time. You could imagine short cases in an occupation or something where it's different, but a government has to have methods of representation in it. And if it doesn't, that is a illegitimating, it makes the government progressively illegitimate over time. And then, so in that sense, um, meaning having representative features, I think one feature of legitimate government is that it's democratic, just in that sense of having voting, having methods of representation. But that's not enough to make it legitimate. It's not the fundamental fact of what makes it legitimate. It's um, one significant fact. And I have a piece on this called The Role of Voting in the American System of Government in a book called Textbook on Americanism, um, which I say more about that idea there. It's a very good piece. I'll, I'll recommend it. I think it's very clarifying of this question that doesn't get a lot of attention. Uh, so just to sort of lit, add a little bit more, um, yeah, I mean, just a slightly different way of putting some of what I think has already been put is your authority over your life as an individual doesn't come from the fact that 50-plus percent of the people around you say, yeah, she gets a right. No, like, your authority is yours. So and that's... And, Yes, then we can adopt a government that will be our agent to protect our rights, but their fun, their, the government's fundamental authorization, correspondingly, does not result from the vote of the people or the majority will. Um, getting back to something else that, uh, if I can think clearly at this point, um, that Aaron was saying, oh yeah, you said now some people reach a certain stage or their society, their government reaches a stage in which you're not my agent. I don't recognize you as my agent. What I also think we have a lot of, though, is people who sort of have fuzzy ideas about consent and democracy and the authority of the government. And I think some people, and I think a lot of Americans, feel this kind of fuzzy resignation to, well, you know, that's what the majority wants, so I guess that's what we're obligated to do or that's what we have to do. And they'll sort of go along and feel like, well, you know, majority will, because the idea of majority will or democracy has really gradually but steadily eclipsed the idea of individual rights, no matter what the goddamn majority says, no matter how big the goddamn majority is. But that idea has really just been so lost. But I, yeah, I mean, it's a good kind of question because it is, it gets more complicated than this, even, I think, in some of what we're saying. But Greg's essay is very good on this. Surprise, surprise. Thank you very much. Um, a question on self-esteem. So uh, self-esteem, in my understanding, is your moral evaluation of yourself. Um, it looks like Greg disagrees. Um, uh, but that's, and now, the, something that I thought of was is that once one understands objectivism, the objectivist ethics, that... Uh, the purpose of morality, of any kind of moral judgment, is your own happiness. Doesn't that give you a certain indestructible core to your self-esteem? That um, because the purpose of all moral judgment is your own happiness, you would be, if you were to judge yourself as entirely 
irredeemable, entirely unworthy, then that would simply take you out of the realm of morality to begin with. So that as a result, it's sort of like there's an ask. Once you realize this, you have a, 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 self, a part of self-esteem that's almost indestructible or almost axiomatic in a certain sense. That if you were to undercut your own self-esteem in this way, you'd be denying the very purpose of moral judgment. Um, any thoughts on this? So one thing I'll say is, remember how Rand talks about self-esteem. It's the fundamental conviction that I am able and I am worthy of having a good, happy life, of living, of flourishing, of pursuing my self-interest. But both aspects there are important, right? And I think that at least part of how I understand your question, I think suggests that, hey, look, if I'm committed to egoism, if I think, yeah, I'm entitled to go after my happiness. That may speak to the I am worthy element, right? But I've got to walk the walk. I've got to live virtuously and according to the values to be the kind of person who is able and on that basis also worthy. So I, th I, th I think that's one way in on some of what you're raising. Yeah, the, the reason why I made the face that you said seems that I disagree is... is um, you said it's your judgment of yourself, so your moral judgment of yourself. And I don't think it's, I think it's a little more than that, because one, it's not whatever moral judgment you have of yourself. It's, it's a high moral judgment of yourself, and it's not just, it's not exactly the same as moral, though I think it ultimately comes down to the same as moral. It's, as Tara said, your conviction that you're able and worthy. And um, particularly if you have the wrong moral ideas, those things might come apart your view of what's able and what's, what, what's worthy. So um, it, it's this joint conviction of ability and worth. The more correct I think your moral views are, the more those will go together. And then the other part about it is judgments of worth are in part historical. I mean, I think some people ought to have no self-esteem. Uh, they, they, they generally don't have it. And like, you know, um, some people have done things that are so horrible that there is no coming back for them. And you know, morality, all it has to say to them is, man, you wasted your life and it's too late for you. And, and they're not going to listen to that. That's a very small group of people. But I mean, like, you know, uh, but that's so Stalin or somebody, right? Yeah. Um, for, for most normal people, I think, yeah, there's a kind of core of self-esteem that you can reclaim by recognizing that you're a human being, that human beings have a basic kind of competence and you're committing to embracing your humanity. But that's like a core or a nugget or a kernel of what can be self-esteem. For it to be self-esteem fully, there has to be this earned confidence that like, I've developed that, I've made something of that. And if you're at the stage, if not you, but if, if someone's at the stage where they see themselves as kind of a screw up in life reasonably, and they're about to turn things around and so forth, and they've made that first step towards turning it around, you can think of that as like a down payment on self-esteem, but it's not a full self-esteem yet. We, we can take this to later, but in the, in the Stalin example, wouldn't he be contradicting the very purpose of morality if he, if he said, I've screwed up so badly that I'm unworthy to even live. Now morality's just out for him, so the very standard on which he condemned himself is also violated. So even for I Stalin, think... there would be 
like a like a nugget that's indestructible, not the whole thing as you say. I think you can make yourself into a monster. Of course. And I think that what it is to be a monster is to, in effect, to have no real values that can respond to positive reinforcement. Like, if you, so I think that Stalin trying to better himself, <laughs> part of what makes him a Stalin is that that's not there for him to do anymore. But this is a question about, like, what is the psychology of the deeply evil mm. like? But, like, imagine someone who was Stalin who was trying to better himself. I think what you'd say is, I, I got nothing I could do that could make up for this. It's time for me to off myself. Thank you. And just a quick addition. Insofar as self-esteem is a value, it takes action. It, it, you know, it's not a dream. It's not a wish. It's not a, oh, this is pretty good. You know, like I'm good or human beings are good. It's a walking the wall, right? It's a, a value is an action item. It's something you gotta act on, and right. And if you're getting the evidence, I'm not acting in a life-promoting way. My self-esteem will fall, and it should. Yeah. And, and a lot of that, a lot of the the steps by which one builds self-esteem and uh, and shores it up and, and validates it in the fact is you have to build a track record with yourself. So I mean, it's basically like um, I can do it, and I'm worth it. And but where does the I can do it come from? Well, you have to do it. And then and say, oh, yeah, I, I can achieve something, and that was tough, and, and yet I worked at it, and I achieved it, and then I have a reflection on myself. I'm the kind of person who could do something like this. And you do that a number of times, you're like, yeah, I've got this. And there can be some kinds of things that, like, yeah, I don't know if I can quite do that, but I've done a lot of things that were challenging, and it's maybe, and sometimes you find some things, that, that's a bit beyond my power. I don't think I'm quite capable of that. Okay, but it's at, it's at that fundamental core that, but I've got this. It, I, maybe I don't have, like, theoretical physics or something, maybe that's, so it's some people are like, well, maybe I'm not quite capable of that. But philosophically, when you look at your life, like metaphysically, I've got this, like, I can do life. Uh, and I think that's part of what And I can build. exert the appropriate kind of effort, yeah. even though I'm not gonna succeed at everything I try. Yeah, but that is a, another source of self I'm doing the kind of thing I should be doing in order to get the value. It may not always work out, but that's another source of self-esteem. There is, um, Gina Gorlitt and I did a podcast a while back as part of, a, so I have a, a podcast series out of the Salem Center at the University of Texas called uh, Choose Your Issues. And one episode from a few months ago was me and Gina Gorlin talking about um, unconditional love and is there any sense in which there is such a thing or isn't and what should there be? And one of the contexts this comes up is unconditional positive regard for patients in therapy and the, the way in which you have to have, James, the very thing you're talking about, this kind of kernel of um, self-regard uh, to, to self-improve, and what is that, and is that self-esteem, and in what sense is it written, I So just the, the context in which I think I've thought the most about this is, uh, is that kind of context, and we talk a little bit more about this, and in, in what sense is each of us think there is something like that and isn't in that episode. So that's just a general resource on that. Ankar, you you wrote a whole chapter on on uh, self esteem and psychology that I thought was really good, and you're the only one I, we haven't heard from on this. So I want to know. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. In the kinds of examples being brought up, there's a level of evil that is irredeemable, and it's it's not. The question was something like, well, if you have knowledge or understanding of objectivism 
that will give you a core of self-esteem. I don't know. I do not think it gives you a core of self-esteem. Partly for what you were saying, that it has to be that you have to act on it. And there's a different way of putting the issue of evil. Is there's a point of no return. So you can imagine a Stalin much earlier in his life, as he's descending into evil, that there's a point at which he can say, "This is what I'm doing. It's really bad. I'm going to try to change. I'm going to exert the efforts." But when you get to the point of you're a mass murderer, so I do not think that it's not on the table. And the person would be faking that it's on the table if he said, oh, yeah, no, but I can still be redeemed. I've got a dog, and I was nice to my dog, and doesn't that count? And that's a colonel. Like, no, that it's, it's your way past the point of no return when you get to a Stalin or a Hitler. And it's, if you want the fictional parallel to this, it's Taggart and some of the other villains in... Um, at the shrug, and it's not learning objectivism all of a sudden, oh, now I've got a kernel of self-esteem. No, they hear Galt's radio broadcast, and they partly break down because they recognize they're way past the point of no return. Uh, my question is on testimony. Uh, do I gain knowledge by reading a biology textbook, or uh, in, if so, what's the difference between reading a biology textbook or reading the critique of pure reason. Thank you. I didn't. He, he, the question was, he wants to know about knowledge by testimony. Yes. And the, can you gain knowledge by reading a textbook? And uh, let's say he read a biology textbook. Does he now know what he read? Uh, but the, what if he read the critique of pure reason? So, um, it's my question is on that um, most of the time, I cannot by myself check the anatomy of heart or something. So uh -huh. do I gain knowledge by reading a textbook on that? Um, I hate to like answer things by giving references to myself, but since it saves some time, I have a, a talk that you can find online on um, being an objective consumer of science, and that and a kind of follow-up discussion of that are both part of the course that's on the, um, I guess on the ARU app or whatever it's called, uh, called um, Thinking Objectively. And it's a lot of it is about this. How do you think about testimony? And how do you evaluate testimony? And when do you know based on it? And what about different sources? Um, so for a longer answer for me, look there. But the, the shorter answer is the question isn't do you have knowledge because you read a textbook. It's can you get knowledge from a textbook or from a book or from testimony? And the answer is yes. But just hearing the testimony doesn't give you the knowledge. Knowledge is work. There's a certain way you have to use your mind with respect you for, for, to what you read to get what knowledge there is to be gotten out of it. And there are all kinds of questions and things you have to consider about who the source is and how do I know about the source and how do I know whether he's in a condition to know. And if you're doing those things well, then you get a lot of knowledge from textbooks and testimony. And uh, if you are not, then you don't. Okay, thank and you. T testimony is one of the ways, many ways in which you collect the available evidence uh, that's around. I mean, we in like ancient philosophy. It's like, what did uh, what did Thales, uh, you know, these early thinkers think? Of? Well, what's uh, what's the evidence? I wasn't there. I mean, this is like pre-Socrates, and it's like, well, you look at what's available, and you sometimes you don't really know what the reliability of the sources is. Some say Thales said, you know, all things are water, and we have a reports uh, of people saying that that's one of his views, and you have reports about some fantastical things he was said to have done, and some of it, this might be legend, but you have to kind of say, um, what can I 
I'm collecting evidence, or at least collecting testimony, collecting reports about what could have happened. And then you can then you have to establish how can I know what of this I can be certain about, or is it just at this point we have you know Diogenes Laertius said this, and Aristotle quoted him as saying this, and but I, we don't have any texts of his the laying around, and so it's we can't really check. So you have to kind of temper your acceptance and say, well, we have report A, B, C, and D. There's some conflicting claims here, and there's some things that overlap, and we can kind of form a picture about what has been said about this ancient guy named Thales, of which we know little, and it should stand in your mind like that. Is it knowledge that he said this? No, I wouldn't put it that way. What you have knowledge of is that we have uh, Aristotle's testimony that he said this, and you, or you take a dispute among friends or people you know, and it's like, uh, well, he called me this. And then, yeah, but that was because you would, and you're just listening to conflicting testimony among friends who were having a dispute. And it's kind of like you're collecting the testimony. And then you have to start judging who's testifying. What do I know about the person testifying? How honest are they? If I ask them questions, it's like, did he really say that? So, well, okay. okay, so, okay, so this is a little, and you start tempering this whole, maybe, maybe she just triggered me. And so there's a lot of things that you have to put you have to distinguish what you can count as knowledge. Like, I know this is true. I, I, I have a hold of a fact of reality versus I have various kinds of testimony, reports, and I have to sort of put that in, in the pile of things that I would collect that maybe someday I can put together into a puzzle, puzzle and make it integrate. But right now it doesn't, it's not established. Um, I'm a little worried that the category of testimony is being blown up to include everything from somebody else, not you. The, the idea that testimony, if you think of it as in a law court, that I think that's a typical situation in which people first think about it. The person's testifying to something he observed. Nobody else in the courtroom was there and to observe it and so on. A biology textbook or the critique of pure reason are not in that category. Um, a biology textbook, if it's good, is pointing you to all kinds of independent evidence that you can observe and gather. And you brought up, well, I might not know about the heart. Well, you could have a textbook that's too advanced for you, that you have not made the uh, observations about anatomy, so have not done any kind of dissection, so that it's talking and presupposing you have that knowledge and you've acquired it by your own independent observations and so on, and yet the textbook can be over your head. But if it, it's presupposing you have that knowledge and you have that knowledge, it's giving you arguments and so on, that you can figure out, not it's, oh, I just have to rely on he was there and I wasn't. So, and the same particularly for a critique of pure reason, any philosophy book that is not especially about a technical area, philosophy of biology or something like that, is presupposing that it has a bunch of observations that everybody has made in living their life, and I'm now helping you integrate that. And so, and so you can evaluate Kant's arguments on the basis of what you have actually observed in your own life, about your own functioning, other people's functioning, so on. He's giving you arguments, and you can evaluate them. It's not just, well, oh, he saw something, I wasn't there, so who knows? There's also the, there's expert testimony, which is a special category, um, I mean, law, but I think it's, I think of test, if you're learning, hold on, getting into what I said, okay, so if, if you, not everything that you find in a book that you might learn from a book is testimony. If you're reading Euclid's Elements, and at the end of Euclid's Elements, you know 
the Pythagorean theorem to be true, or by the time you got to the end of that, you don't know it based on Euclid's testimony. There was a proof in there, you did it, through that proof you saw how these angles have to be equal, and, and, and you don't know it by testimony. But in, in, often in books, you do know things by testimony in the book. Um, uh, when you're knowing it by testimony, it means that part of your reason for thinking the thing is true now is that this other guy said it, he's in a position to know. And I think in a biology textbook, it gives you some reasons that you can somewhat check on your own. But unless you're using it to become like a super expert in biology, uh, even a good use of it means that you're going to be relying somewhat on the author's testimony for to be sure that some of the claims in it are true. And um, one of what I talk about a lot in that lecture that I recommend is is how to do that, how to use testimony in that kind of case. If they, you don't just take it on faith, you, have, you expect there to be some reasons that the author gave you, uh, but on the other hand, you realize that it would be a lot of work and take a lot of time and a lot of background knowledge to fully assess those reasons in the way the author can, and you're somewhat relying on him, and you know that you're doing that, and you're looking for signs that he's credible or, in, or not credible, and you're holding it in a different way than you hold knowledge that you got all on your own. And again, there's a whole discipline to knowing by testimony. But I, I think the essence for all of these is not, don't think of, do I have knowledge? But think of knowing as something you do. And think about what is the work involved in knowing by testimony versus the work involved in knowing this other way. Think of the job description of that kind of knowing. And it, 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 it includes checking in certain ways, thinking through certain things, holding certain questions open in your head, uh, being alert for certain kinds of counter evidence. And if you're doing that, then you know. And if you're not able to do that, then you don't know, but you're maybe being rational and holding it as a hypothesis. Or, and if you're not doing any of those things, you're being irrational. Thank you. Could you guys talk about the difference between the concrete bound and the anti-conceptual mentalities? I could say a word about them. Uh, the... I think of concrete bound as a much wider phenomenon that it's you even an abstract person can be concrete bound in a particular area that it's you're you're not you're functioning too much at a kind of perceptual level you haven't figured out how to abstract here you don't even recognize that look there is an issue of abstraction you can form principles here I'm not doing it so Anti-conceptual, as the name, it's a hostility to the phenomenon of abstraction pretty much across the board. There can be some pockets, I think, where a person is functioning more. But it, she uses this as, as, a, as a term of, so uh, 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 one way you can put it is one's more a vice and the other is an error. Um, to be concrete bound is you're making an error and you're too focused on the concretes. You're not thinking enough about like, what is similar about them. How do I unite these? What's similar? What's different? How do I form more abstractions? Get to a level of thinking about the issue in terms of principles. The anti-conceptual mentality is hostile to that. So it doesn't want to put in that effort. It's not just that it's not doing it. A concrete, point, mount, a concrete bound mind is not doing it. But it's not hostile to doing it. Um, an anti-conceptual mind is hostile. It's rebelling against the need to be abstract and to conceptualize. I think that's part of how she the, the, what the difference is and when she's using these two terms when she's talking about people. So is concrete bound a psychoepistemological issue? It can be. 
but it need not be, I think. And I mean, a, a good, sincere objectivist who has a pretty good understanding of the conceptual approach that's appropriate can fall into areas in which, you know, I'm being too concrete bound about this. I now find that my understanding of some concept, it's a little bit too ingrained only in some specific examples that I'm familiar with. So I would think that it, it yeah, well could be often psychopistemological, but that means you've got, you know, when you catch that, then you want to work on it in regard to that particular concept, let's say, and to be on the lookout for it elsewhere in your thinking. Thank you. Hi, uh, something much more basic. So, um, so today I think we've heard most of the arguments, most of the normative arguments that, you know, altruism is immoral and socialism is immoral. But on the other hand, there's also a completely, I wouldn't say completely separate, well, I, I was about to ask about that, but there's an independent argument, an independent descriptive argument that altruism is undoable, socialism is undoable. Like I think Rand says somewhere that one can, one cannot act on Kantianism, only accept Kantianism with guilt. So how should we view the relation between this normative and descriptive? arguments like do they connect in some way does one cause another are they just the, the case simultaneously the case like do they just happen to be like that i don't think i fully understand the question but right. if you're talking about the normative versus the descriptive argument is the one that altruism is bad don't do it don't live like that and then the descriptive is no one's really an altruist because it's impossible to practice yeah yeah, so like, what is the actual like, relation between these two? I should just say, by way of not understanding it, it's, it's hard to hear up here. I don't know if you guys in the audience are having, finding it hard to hear from the microphone. So just if we're squinting or looking confused, it might not be that we disagree or are confused by something. We might just not have heard some right. words and then we pick it up from context. I but, always disagree when I squint. <laughs> okay. No, um, what's the relationship between the two? Well, what are the two? So um, the, the Rand's point that you can't consistently practice altruism, and very few people do, in the sense that if your if your attitude toward anything that I anything that I regard as valuable, I give it up. You, you'd pretty soon you'd pretty soon be dead. You'd wipe out everything. You wouldn't have any motivation. You would you know it's sort of like um, if you really had every consistent if you if you practiced it consistently, you, you wouldn't really be around much. Um, and but people don't really practice it like that. I mean, maybe somebody does, but it's a kind of rare. Um, so she's trying to point to there's some kind of deep in, impossibility about thinking about if we sort of universalize this and everybody behaves like this. I give up everything for you, but then he can't benefit it because he's supposed to give up everything for somebody else who he's supposed to give up everything, and everybody's handing around the, the unused Christmas presents and sort of like nobody benefits from anything. And so there's a deep incoherence to it. But part of the reason is, but don't live like that, is your attitude to value should be to, to achieve them, to pursue them, to keep them, to enjoy them. Your attitude to value shouldn't be to give them up. Because what life is, it's a continual process of pursuing, achieving, enjoying, using values. That is what life is. And if, if your attitude is the opposite of that, it's an anti-life thing. And if you value your life, don't live that way. Um, yeah, so no, I, I was just, or I was, uh, I was trying to say that 
like it is two different separate arguments when you say this morality, like you should not come up with a morality that you cannot follow and that this morality undermines the value of life. Like I, like I reckon those are two separate arguments. Are they in some sense connected? I, yeah, okay, they are, I think they are connected. It's not like one argument is one commits a logical fallacy and that's one reason don't be an altruist. That's not, I think, what she's saying. Uh, it's the reason why you can't practice it is because it's anti-life. The reason and, why you, you can't practice it fully and consistently is the same reason why you shouldn't practice it even a little bit, namely that it's killing you. Um, so if you do it a lot, you won't be able to do it a lot because you, you'll be dead. Uh, but it's not like it's something that there's just the right amount of and you, you, know, you just shouldn't do it too much. It's, when you understand what's wrong with it, you understand why even a little is too much of it. So there are, I think, two parts of a, an overall picture of the thing. Right. So I'll just add a little bit. Um, I said very quickly toward the very beginning of my talk, because I wasn't going into this in that lecture, um, but that the case for egoism, right, is grounded in our nature. We have needs. We have to act in certain ways to fulfill them. We have to act in self-interested ways. Altruism says don't do that. Altruism is anti-life, right? Whether it's in a small piece or big, you know, consistently, it's anti, so it is one and the same fact about human beings that uh, prescribes egoism if we are to live and prosper and that renounces altruism as the, you know, that's the anti-life. And it's not just true of altruism, it's true of everything bad. Um, so the same thing could be said about going by faith rather than reason. Um, uh, and other and anything else that's wrong too. Bad things, immoralities, are parasitical. They're 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 they don't produce anything. They can't keep you alive. They can't keep you going. If you are alive and you are going and you are moving through life, it's because of the better parts of you. And these parts of you are are hitching a ride on that and sapping their energy. Any that that's true of anything that's bad. If it's not like that, then it's not bad. Right, so I think my concern is that we are inferring the all from the it, and I'm just wondering whether this is a thing that we should be doing, or is there any you know, danger of it being questionable philosophy? Did you say that we're, that we're inferring from the is? Um, is that what you Yeah, like the all is. Well, the is is this will kill you. Right. And the ought is, if you don't want to be killed, don't, right. you ought not to do this, or you ought to do the other thing. And that's just the kind of ought you can offer for an And it's the only kind of ought you should accept. So if your oughts aren't based on facts, if your oughts aren't, if you, you know, you ought to do something, if that's not based on actual facts that would give you some reason to do something or not do something, you shouldn't accept them. And ought without an is, is an out of context a duty from nowhere. It's thou shalt, period. And there, that's nothing. You've got nothing there except obedience. Right, thank you. That clarifies a lot. Okay. Uh, I have a question about integrating the long term and the short term and how objectivity applies there. Because sometimes it can feel like when, when you have two, uh, like you have the short term thing, you'll enjoy 
doing, but doesn't really amount to anything in the long term, you can choose to do that or you can spend your time on a long-term pursuit, but it can feel very fuzzy there. And how do you, like, how are you objective in that context saying like, okay, this is really the right thing to do or the selfish thing to do, if you want to put it that way. Let me just say one thing, which is not probably the total answer to what you're getting at, but, but you, okay, let me speak off the cuff here, but um, everything's off the cuff here for me. But um, you don't have to try to integrate everything you do in the short term into some wider grand scheme long-term perspective. You don't, you want to make sure that it doesn't clash with, contradict or hinder long-term values, but sometimes you just want to go on a walk. And it's sort of like, why? Well, how, what's that building toward? It's nice out. And it's like, yeah, so but it'll make me feel better and then I can get back to that paper I'm working on and then I'll, you know, you don't have to integrate that into everything, but you do want to make sure the short term doesn't clash with the long term. And there are many cases in which you really do want to integrate a lot of short term stuff towards some uh, long range goal. So that's not a total answer to what you're getting at, I think, but it's one comment worth making. I think, I think and this, I think it's a tricky question. I think it's hard. And I, you know, there certainly isn't a formula for this is the amount of, you know, this is the quotient you should pay to long-term versus short-term and so on. Uh, I, so I genuinely think this is an ongoing question in life because we don't have a sell-by date. Like, you're not born, like, okay, Aaron knows his birthday, presumably. He doesn't know his death date. But, you know, it would be different if you knew expiration date you could, you could plan very differently. And people, do, I mean, obviously, sometimes people have terminal illnesses and they hear from the doctors, you have three months, okay. But my point is, you don't know how long your future is or exactly what's going to happen, but you know the great probabilities and so on. And that is a lot of why it makes so much sense to pay attention to the long range and the full range and so on. But at the same time, you're here now. And life is, uh, ethics is not a retirement plan. It's how to lead your life today and tonight and tomorrow. And it is for enjoying your life. So there's got to be a lot of attention to enjoy now, but enjoy in such a way that if you want a lot of nows, a lot of those tomorrows, right, um, you're building your life today in a way that's sustaining and self, you're esteeming yourself and your life, to use self-esteem as a verb there, right, in such a way that you can have this great life where I'm not constantly putting off the pleasures, right? But nor am I constantly evading thinking about the future that I want. So again, that's not to say there's some sort of, you know, uh, formula or particular virtue that answers just this question, but I think it's a, it's a real question, I think, for human beings, given, given some of the uncertainty under which we live. Well, the... The present is of absolutely no value, except insofar as you see yourself as a creature that exists over time and is extended over time. So the really short term is of no value without the long term. And likewise, the long term is of no value at all without short terms that it decomposes into. So it's not like there are these two things, the short term and the long term, and how do I put them together? Either of them having any value depends on there being anything having any value depends on your spending part of your long-term life on it. 
So there's a way that you can think about these that's sort of mistaken. They're two opposite things, and how do I fit them together in a life? Um, no, everything that's of value is of value in the present for the part it plays in a life that's going to have many presents over time. And so there's a kind of, I think, conceptual error that can get one thinking there's a kind of puzzle here or problem here. Once you clear that error out, there's lots of questions about like, should I go for a walk today or not? And if I do go for a walk today, how should I think about it? I really want to eat this thing now, but it might be unhealthy long term. And there are, so there are lots of questions about how you um, integrate the pursuit of values on different timescales, but there's not like one overall answer to it. There's the idea that you, you have to have a conception of your life as a whole and how these things fit into it, whatever you're doing, and that conception has to be causal and respect causality. And in a way, I disagree with something Aaron said earlier. I think you do have to integrate your walks and everything you do into your whole life, but not by, but, but then the part I agree with is not by, well, here's the cash value of it. When I'm 63, here's how it'll help that I took a walk now, or here's how many more pages I'll get written on my dissertation. It's something like, you know, part of a good life is a life where you're experiencing the world around you and getting some exercise, and here's an occasion for that, and that's why I take walks. And part of what I like out of life is making decisions on different timescales. And so I don't want to book up my time so strenuously that I never do things on the spur of the moment. I want to have some my days scheduled in such a way that sometimes I can just decide to take a walk. But that is integrating it into your life. It's thinking about what kind of life you want to have, what kind of time range you want to be making, what type of decisions on, what ways to do that might be irresponsible, though it might seem like yeah, but I really should be a lot more scheduled than I am because I'm not getting something done. Um, but th that is what it is to integrate it into your life. It's not to um, like have a really detailed schedule. It's to have a or you know or task managing list. It's to have a conception of how all these things fit together, and to recognize that that fitting together is always going to be over time. And you want a life where always or as often as possible you're in the moment, enjoying that whole life by doing whatever you're doing in the moment. Thanks. Critics of capitalism have made the case in the past that uh, capitalism is no longer practical once uh, civilization is advanced and highly industrial and technological. And specifically today, what people say sometimes is that like social media companies are manipulating what we think and the choices we might make. So how would you respond to somebody saying that if it's true that individuals' reasoning is the proper human way, then laissez-faire capitalism might have been the proper system to get us here. But now that we have this type of technology and these corporations that are so good at manipulating our, our thoughts and actions, now a proper government is one that sort of curates economic activity away from companies manipulating thoughts and decisions. The, the response is it's complete BS. Um, and take the social media as, so they pretend that there's this problem. We've got these large social media companies that do all kinds of things that affect how we think and what data we see and so on. And the solution is to have a government monopoly on this. And that's going to, now you have one source that is going to do all of this. And as you put it, curate it. So instead of having five, I mean, I don't think this conceptualization is right, but just in their own terms, 
We don't want five big entities curating it. We want one. And we want to do it, and not you guys. And that, that is not an argument that is at all plausible. Um, that's why I think it's complete BS. And it is, it's masquerading as an argument. But it, to the extent it's an argument, it's this. The argument is this. These are private companies. They're motivated by profit. We all know that's corrupt. We're government officials. We're not motivated by profit. We know that is good. So let's take it out of the hands of evil and put it into the hands of good. That's a kind of argument that is in the background, but that is just what the part of what altruism or a conventional morality teaches. So part of its plausibility to people is it gets translated in that way. But the real argument is um, if we want a monopoly, we want to wield the power. And that, that it's a power grab. It's not a genuine. Um, and the idea that, tech, that bureaucrats couldn't run the Soviet Union. You want an advanced technological economy? Um, and they're going to run Uber and airplanes and self-driving cars. They can do that. They can't get enough shoes for people to wear. It, again, it's complete BS. I would like to address uh, premises and values, and I've been thinking about this and see what responses to my, how I uh, would have come to conceptually. Um, I, I've seen that, what I see is that uh, values are, there's a whole range of values that human beings can have, and, but there's a certain identity that individuals have. It's like, there's certain values, like, I, I would not be interested in relationship with a man, sexual relationship, and that would be out of my value range. But, so I couldn't have a premise that would work with that. It would be, it would clash you know, physically or, or mentally. Um, so I see values as something that's sort of below premises that can only, there's, to be discovered and to be acted on through premises and to certain premises can raise some values, but they cannot create values that you don't sort of in your nature as a biological being you currently have. Is that, what would be response to that conceptualization? Of that sounds, it sounds to me like you're saying something like the following. There are some kind of basic wants that you have. And then you have premises, and they're about they're in effect relevant to how to get them. And so the, the role of values and premises is premises tell you how to get things, and values are just you put it more basic thing that tells you just what to want. And that's um, in effect a, the Humean kind of conception of motivation. You just have these wants, and there's not much to say about where they come from. They're kind of basic, and then there's our knowledge is for about telling us how to get them. I don't think that. Right, um, because I think a lot of our values, a lot of the wants, even wanting it, depends on a whole lot of knowledge. And the, the knowledge that you have isn't just if this will get you something else that you want. Like, um, the, the things we want aren't always wanted as means to specific other things. That's not the only other way that background knowledge kind of, and therefore our premises, drives our wants. There are a lot of ways in which knowledge goes into the, the forming of values in the first place. Um, so I think that valuing is a, has both an, premises have both an input 
have more than one relation to values. The one that you're giving is, is one relation. Your premises will tell you how to get some value, but your premises can be involved in your valuing the thing in the first place. But I agree with part of what I think is the spirit of the question, because I take it this is reacting to the question that, that came up earlier during mm -hmm. the earlier Q&A about, well, yes. maybe your values come from your premises. They don't come from premises alone. Val premises are inputs to your values, but it's not like if you and I believe all the same things, then we'll have exactly the same values. They're not the sole inputs, and I think that's right. Yeah, it's, it's like I, I don't like, I love rock and roll, but I don't like opera for the most part or certain musicians, and there's I, I don't think I can get the knowledge or the premises. There are certain things that I will value in myself, mm -hmm. regardless of the premises or the knowledge I'll try to develop. Yeah, I may raise it, but it will never be as much exciting and much passion as I have naturally towards certain things, it seems. Yeah, but we can think about, this gets into the details of psychology, but. You, you like rock and roll more than opera? Is that the, what's happening? Yeah, or certain opera. I will just like. But I, we don't do it. I just want to do the placeholder for what's happening. Yeah. So there's what you can do now about that. Like if you want to try to develop a taste in some more opera or whatever. But there's also like, all right, why do you like rock and roll? Well, there's going to be some historical story about how you came to like rock and roll. And that's going to involve a lot of things. And some of them are going to be your premises. What it seemed like to you. Maybe. It represented rebellion at a certain time, and you thought the status quo wasn't good. At this, like, so if we 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 kind of historically go back into thinking about the origins of your current preferences, I'm not even talking about justifying them, just like understanding the psychological story about how they came about, and then we can think about are they good or bad, or and which ones are. There's going to be a lot of beliefs that are part of the process by which the preferences formed, and some of them are going to beliefs you still have, and some of them might be beliefs you don't still have. But so I think there's just like a complicated psychology to valuing that involves knowledge and belief? Well, I, I did also. have input of both around the same time. Mm -hmm. And my passion was listening to, to rock and roll a certain time. And, and, my, and I had an aversion to, other, to more classical. And it seemed at the same period, and, and sort of like a youth. Yeah, but like you think about what did you think then? What did you believe? How did it come about? Mm -hmm. What earlier values did you have that went into and earlier belief oh, okay. that wanted to you having these reactions. And I just, the point I'm trying to is it's like a complicated psychology to this. And I think it, it, the psychology doesn't work with, there's some fixed set of basic values that have no beliefs as part of them. And then all the other values come about from those plus beliefs about how to get the first ones. I think there's a much more subtle interaction between um, desires, feelings, sensations, experiences, projects, goals, beliefs going on throughout your life that are the genesis of your different values. Thank you. And, the, and you, you mentioned music. These things can be hard to uncover. It, you know, as you said, there's a, a complicated historical story about how this came to have an impact on you. What was the impact? What does it relate to? And what were you doing at this time? What were you thinking and feeling at this time? What were you going through? And uh, it's, it's not always easy to uncover exactly what those were, but... And what associations did you form yeah. is relevant yeah. to music and other yeah. things. And what else had you seen to this with a contrast to that? You know, this felt like a breath of fresh air and an atmosphere dominated by that. Somebody else, you know, like the, the Greek music that was playing feels a little unusual to me. If you grew up around it, it wouldn't. And then, you know, 
the, the fact that it's unusual will factor into how much you like or dislike it, depending on lots of other things about you. Like you could imagine someone, uh, I like Bach a lot, and it, playing some uh, organ preludes for someone, like he's magnificent, and somebody listens to him and goes, ugh, it sounds like church. It's one of these things, like, it's not, a, it's not an aesthetic response to the, the quality of the music or, or, or to the fugue or whatever it was. It was just like, oh, my God. They, they but I just don't like church. organ yeah, music. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. like the organ. Sorry, it doesn't have to do with the religious stuff. I did that organ music. <laughs> <laughs> it is, I think, in one of the essays in The Virtue of Selfishness where Ayn Rand describes value or defines, rather, value as something that one acts to gain and or keep. And whilst it is clear to me, I think, why she would want to stress the behavioral part in this definition, like uh, to really drive the point home that value is not a value unless it is pursued in action, it has alluded to me as to why uh, the cognitive element of passing on a value judgment is completely absent from this definition. I would love to hear your response to that. It's not a definition of human value, or in particular of moral value, it's, it's a definition of value characterization across the board. And if you read that essay, that includes plants. They don't have a consciousness, yet they act to gain and or keep things. And that's important for the whole analysis. So it's value in the broadest sense is what a living thing acts to gain and or keep. And there are living things that are not even conscious. So you wouldn't talk, you wouldn't it, even, it, the issue of arising of what's their knowledge, what's the knowledge involved, it's, it's not an issue when you're looking at plants, for instance. Okay, thanks. That was wonderful. Hi. This is a question about the philosophy of law. I'm wondering what the extent of the government is when it comes to protecting the rights of children. When would the government remove a child from its home and what would happen to that child? It's not, Even though I'm the one who's written the most on philosophy of law here, I'm sorry to say that... Children's rights is not an issue that I've given a lot of thought. I mean, I do think children have certain rights. I do think parents have certain special rights over, um, over their children for a while, for a period, based on, and now it's not a unilateral, whatever they do uh, is fine just because you're daddy or something like that. But I really haven't worked on, I, I think there are more, there are, there are perfectly valid and important questions about the application of rights to the sphere of minors or other people who are not, who may not be minor in age, but um, because of certain incapacities, don't have the same capacity to be a rational agent such that, yeah, their claims for, to freedom of action, which is what rights are all about, right, would be different, but I don't have that really worked out in any. It, and I'll say, say one thing, though, is, is um, this has to be defined by law. Like, there's no intrinsic answer that we sort of find under a bush or something, and that's the right answer. It's more that you have to find out, because uh, there's a difference between, I saw a bumper sticker that said, religion is child abuse. No, well, <laughs> not from a legal perspective, right? You might think that I don't want people teaching this stuff. It inculcates a bad value and feelings of guilt, and it's, there's a way in which it's a problem. But again, that's the, you, the, I don't want the government interfering into intellectual issues instead of like telling people what they can teach their children and then they're going to decide, well, you're teaching it objectivism, that's child abuse, and so like it's a horrible belief system and stuff. So you don't, you don't want that, but there's an issue of physical abuse. 
Like they're being beat up, they're being starved, and there are laws, you know, around that kind of thing. He's like, you can't starve your child, your children. You can't beat them. You can't, you know. But then there's a kind of line. Well, okay, I spanked him because he was, I don't know, mouthing off at me or something like that. And there have to be in some ways which the law says at this point you've crossed a line, and these things are some of the borderline cases. Maybe you put it before a jury, or you bring a child psychologist or something that knows something about this to kind of. But you have to be careful about how you draw the lines. Um, but again, that has to be worked out carefully. Part of the context you have to take in mind, keep in mind, is that um, parenting is a difficult, rational process. It's something you have to figure out what's best for these kids. How do I raise them? There are all kinds of mistakes you can make. There are unanswered questions. There are lots of things about how to raise kids that nobody knows the right answer to yet, or you know, which things are better or worse than which. And people who are human beings with free will and control of their life have to be able to make the decision to have kids and be able to make the decision in good conscience that they're going to be able to raise them the way that they think is best and right for them. And that's what we have to protect. We have to think about the person who's better and more rational and knows more than his peers, and they think the way he's raising his kids is wrong, and he's got to be safe from them. And what we want to do in laws about child abuse is present, pr protect children from the grossest, most obvious, easily identifiable, um, clear and able to be made clear and objective to everyone types of harm while protecting the parent's ability to use his mind to figure out possibly better and non-orthodox ways to raise his kids. And those are the kind of the, the two shoals that we have to, to steer between. And the way to do it is, you know, uh, I think where we've come out is in something like what Aaron said. But you, the, the laws have to be against clear, well-defined types of physical harm to the child. And then, you know, which particular one sets, you know, a much more local matter. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.